0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great Fall History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd September 2018 and this is episode 79. On today's programme, I talked to historian Tim Halstead on his recent book on Uppingham Public School during the Great War that has been published by Helion & Co. I spoke to Tim over the interweb from his home in Bedfordshire. Tim, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Today we're going to talk about your latest book on Uppingham Public School during the Great War. Before we start, could you just give us some idea of your background on how you became interested in the Great
1: War? Yes, I was educated at Uppingham, um, which ultimately gave the uh, genesis for the idea of my dissertation when I did the um, MA and British First World War studies at Birmingham, which, as I'm sure you know, has, has produced a lot of um, people who produced some interesting work on the First World War. Um, and since then, I've got further into it. So I've uh, had the, um, the privilege of uh, doing uh, two journal articles and now I've uh, just had something published in At All Costs, which has just come out, the 1916 volume edited by Spencer Jones.
0: Can you give us a bit of background on Uppingham, uh, its history, and what sort of person was attracted to the school, i.e. what sort of boy went there before the First World War?
1: Yeah, certainly. Uppingham was founded in 1584, by a man called Archdeacon Robert Johnson, but it was really only in the Victorian times that it started to expand with the arrival of Edward Fring in 1853. And he is very much known as the second founder of Uppingham. And it was the only headmastership he held, and he was there until 1887 when he died. And although these days we very much talk about Thomas Arnold as being the great public school educator. Actually, Fring was far more influential in some ways and actually has a lot more to say in in terms of education. Arnold was only interested in the intelligence boys and uh, Fring was very much in, br- interested in bringing the best out of every boy. The, the concept of the all-rounder, which you will hear a lot of uh, Uppingham headmasters have talk about over the years, and in particular, Fring liked to talk about truth, courage and self-control which were really important things to him. The sort of boys that he, the families he attracted, were basically northern industrialists and people working in the city with a few um, professionals thrown in as well. So it was very much the, um, the new rising middle class who, who started to ascend once the corn laws had been abolished and uh, industry started to take over from agriculture as the, uh, as the primary source of re- wealth within the country.
0: So one very obvious question which I have omitted to ask, where exactly is Uppingham?
1: It's in Rutland which is in the Midlands and it's the smallest county in England.
0: Now doesn't Uppingham have a very uh, famous connection with Vera Brittain? Could you just give us a bit of background about that?
1: Absolutely. Um, Vera Brittain's brother was educated at Uppingham um, her, and that was where she met her fiancé um, Roland Leighton, who was killed in 1915 and a uh, friend Victor to Richardson who was killed in 1917, and of course her brother was killed as well in 1918 and so it was this sense of bereavement which led her to write Testament of Youth and everyone of course makes that connection between Uppingham and Vera Brittain. If you're old enough you'll remember the 1970s television series, some of it which was shot at Uppingham.
0: We're going to talk about Uppingham's role in the Great War, obviously that um, Vera Brittain's um, brother fiancé and friend all featured in. Could you give us a rough idea of how many former pupils from Uppingham actually went to war and what their sort of, I suppose, contribution was to the war effort?
1: The total number that I believe served is two and a half thousand. A man called J.P. Graham, who was very much the archivist of of Uppingham, uh, and he was an old boy and a trustee eventually, he he reckoned he had two and a half thousand names. Unfortunately, we haven't got that complete list, and I have, by my own research, have managed to identify just over 2,300. They mainly served as junior officers. It was well over 80% of the old boys at Uppingham who served were junior officers or, or, or higher.
0: And what was the fatality rate of those who went versus who, those who were killed?
1: Roughly about one in five, 20%. So that leaves 80% who survived.
0: So when, they, when obviously war broke out and war continued, what motivated these thousands of boys to actually join up?
1: I think that it was a concern to defend Britain and the Empire. The more I look at it, I think in 19, 1914 and the years leading up to it, The rise of the OTC was very much, I think... a sense of that traditional duty within England and the rest of Britain of the militias and the volunteers, and that while there was no conscription, when your country was under threat, you needed to defend it. And they very much defended and believed in the British way of life.
0: Now, there are some historians who have, who have advanced um, an argument that very much that public schools were, were in effect, brainwashing their pupils um, through their various lessons, the values that they were inculcating, and um, the, t- the teaching of of latin and classics as well as the sort of athleticism and the patriotism which you know went through the school and, and they generally created to so say products a bit like um general melchard and lieutenant george from blackadder yeah did you, did you find any of this uh, does this bear any sort of reality in, in from from your research
1: i think it's really all all a bit of a a parody i found a lot of old boys who felt it was their duty. And when you look at the curriculum of Uppingham, it was only the very bright boys like Roland Layton, who who did a great deal of the classics. For the rest of them, there was a sort of compulsory, fairly functional Latin, but there were fairly thriving business and army classes. And what the parents were interested in was preparing their boys to either work in their businesses, because remember them, a lot of them, the, the parents were industrialists, you know, small factory owners, that sort of thing in their own right, and wanted the, their boys to be prepared for that, rather than the, the whole piece of the classics and learning about great classical military history, historians, I find, I find that quite difficult to buy from what I've looked at at Uppingham, to be quite honest.
0: And then there's a following argument which looks at the role of, obviously, public schools educated people in certain ideals and to be gentlemen, and to their training and ethos, and, and many of these these boys went on to become junior officers, as you point out. Do you think their actual education and the values that they that they took into, into uniform actually helped them be effective leaders?
1: Yes. Very much so, certainly in the case of um, Uppingham, because I think it was uh, very much Spring's idea was to promote the qualities of um, independence, inquisitiveness, and self-confidence, which, of course, are are skills which are very handy if you're a junior officer, especially if you're in the infantry. But bear in mind, of course, not everyone was um, an infantry officer. You know, there were also technical skills which made you a good, capable officer. There was a a guy from a glass company in... St. Helens who worked in the artillery because he got all the scientific abilities to help him.
0: And did you find from your research whether there were any any conscientious objectors or anybody who sort of tried to
1: avoid war service? There were one or two yes. There was a guy who was a member of the Apostles at um, Cambridge there was another guy called Philip Bagnall Hope who had become a Quaker but he also he as he had served in the ambulance service he still felt that he needed to serve in some way even though he wouldn't fight.
0: And did any of the teaching staff um, serve in the war?
1: Yes a number of did but the and the most uh, notable of them being w- was um, a man called Herbert Jones who had who had been the first commander of the Uppingham O T C in 1908 and he he, um, he was what you would call a sort of the full part-time soldier he, was, he had left the the O T C and become a major in the um, in the in the uh, Leicestershire Territorials and but on the outbreak of war he was promoted to a Lieutenant Colonel, and he he had quite a distinguished um, war record.
0: And in your book, you also talk about Uppingham and the home front. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yep, yeah, it's c- quite interesting. In that early on, the whole ethos of a school and, and making the war effort was around OTC training, which, while not compulsory, was gradually in effect becoming compulsory. But gradually as the war goes on, they start to do other things, like they um, send out boys to help in the farms on a Friday afternoon. They have harvest camps. The metal and the carpentry workshops are, are, are turned over to producing things for for the war effort. I think mean, it affected um, affected the school in other ways, because they lost a number of particularly good teachers, and the replacements weren't particularly good. So there was effects on the um, on the discipline within the school, uh, uh, as well as obviously. Um, Declining quality of food. There's a nice little story, though, about um, one housemaster with a sense of humour um, when the school was taking cover because some zeppelins were over, flying overhead on their way to raid the Midlands. He opened his evening prayers with Lord Darken Our Light.
0: Now we come to the issue of gallantry medals. You've done quite a bit of work on that how many gallantry medals did uh, former pupils from Uppingham uh, get, and did was this significantly different from other public schools?
1: Yes, it's quite interesting. I think there's a sort of a variation around what happened. So there were 1,046 awards awarded to old Uppinghamians, and those went to 624 old Uppinghamians in total. So in other words, some won more than one gallantry award. You know, for example, Collinswells, Wells, he he won a Victoria Cross and a DSO. So, you know, there's obviously that sort of thing. If you look at public schools, there's a distinct small group of about 10 that the army had traditionally recruited from before the First World War. And what I did was I looked at two other schools with a similar number of uh, boys at at the school at the start of the, um, the war, to make a, a comparison. One was Winchester, which was one of the um, traditional schools, and one which was Tunbridge, which was very much a, um, a school like Uppingham, similar sort of parent parent base. And what was really remarkable is that for Tunbridge and Uppingham, the number of DSOs and military crosses awarded is quite uh, similar. But when you look at Winchester, there's 50% more DSOs awarded. And surprisingly, considering that there were more senior rank um, at Winchester who were in the service, so in other words, less of a pool for MCs to be awarded to, there were more MCs as well. So I think there's an element of that, that Winchester Old Boys were known to those people who served at the top of the army and, of course, had to uh, recommend a lot, uh, or agree to a lot of the awards. I think that it was a certain extent of, well, we know these chaps, so we're prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. I haven't seen other stuff, for example.
0: So, in a way, it was an Old Boys Network.
1: Yes, I think so. Yes, there's a bit of an irony, isn't there, about old boys' network within a group of old boys. But <laughs> yes,
0: and then and then what what sort of influence did the war have on um, old boys when they returned? Did did they how did they reflect on their war service? A lot
1: of them just got on with their lives. To be quite honest, there were some more extreme examples. There was um, one or two who sadly killed themselves, or a few whose wounds lingered on for years, and they ultimately died of them. And then there were some remarkably sort of inspirational stories of people who had suffered badly and um, and, and actually made the best of it. My favourite is a is a chap called uh, Godfrey Robinson. He's he's absolutely wonderful. His he came from Hull, and he um he he was blinded. He was hit and he was blinded and lost his hearing, and then he managed to restore his hearing and. Quite obviously, quite a characterful family because his mother and two sisters took the chauffeur-driven car to France to go and look for him when they hadn't heard from him for a long time. But after the war, he was doing all sorts of good works, like setting up St Mungo's uh, workshops for blind servicemen, very much involved in uh, the National Institute for the Blind first chairman of it, got there Royal Charter, so he became the Royal Royal National Institute for the Blind. Quite a character, actually. I mean, there's quite a few stories I could tell about, about him. But one of the stories was he used to regularly travel down to London on the train from Hull, and his fellow passengers would be very amused as he sat with a fellow blind playing chess with no chessboard, but just calling out the moves to each other.
0: And finally, where is your book available from?
1: Well, obviously, it's all good bookshops, but you can buy it online at uh, the various sites. Uh, Blackwells often has a very attractive site, and it's of course available at Amazon and other sites like that as well.
0: Tim, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition.